This episode is sponsored by Tribe. Tribe is now one of the UK's leading plant-based nutrition brands, and they've got a community of over 100,000 everyday athletes. Tribe creates delicious, all-natural plant-based snacks, which are also gluten-free. And they're giving Out of Hours listeners a very special discount. You can get your first pack of six of their nutrition bars for just £2, which includes shipping. Head to wearetribe.co slash outofhours and use the code tribeoutofhours, which is all one word. I'll leave a link in the show notes and let me know if you check it out. Welcome back to the Out of Hours podcast. We're almost at the end of the season, but not quite yet. And I'll introduce our guest for today in a moment. But first, I want to tell you about something Out of Hours is running. Out of Hours was set up initially to really be a home for people who are starting and progressing projects that they think should exist in the world. As part of that, we run a four-week launch pad, which is designed to help you get your ideas out on paper. And then we also run a side project circle. So a side project circle brings together people who are working on side project ideas, usually very early in the process. And it can be everything from a blog, a podcast, a business, anything that you think should exist in the world. And one thing that I've noticed is that often people work on these side projects by themselves. And it means that you can get caught up in thinking about certain decisions, not getting any feedback or not making the progress that you'd like to just because you have no consistency schedule or anyone checking in. So the circle is a solution to that. So this is an eight week program. It starts with an introduction. So we'll meet everyone, talk about the projects and actually go through a few exercises to clarify some of the challenges, how you're thinking about them and how you can make the right time um, to progress them. We've just run one, which was a follow up from the launch pad and it worked really well. It's a great way to share the journey with other people and stay consistent. If you're interested in joining, head to outofhours.org slash courses. And I'll also put the link in the show notes, outofhours.org slash courses. The delusion and the false sense of grandeur is really contagious. How quickly you get to a point where you think, when I've got 10,000 customers and when I launch into America and when I whatever, it's like, no, 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 like, babe. It's you and your laptop, so like, let's pull this right back down. Where are you going to find your first 10 customers? Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Lottie Unwin, founder of The Copy Club. The Copy Club is a community of entrepreneurial people who work in marketing. The Copy Club didn't start as a business. In fact, it didn't start as even a side project. It started as a solution to Lottie's own problem. 
Having completed her graduate training at marketing powerhouse Procter & Gamble, Lottie then joined Propercorn to lead their marketing efforts. Propercorn was a startup, and she found it was a steep learning curve. Missing the support that P&G provided, she quickly decided to seek out other connections who could help her on her journey. Soon, she was regularly going for coffees and drinks with people doing similar roles in other companies. The Copy Club evolved into events. She was organising dinners and talks. And it was only when she moved to India that she realised she might have the beginnings of a business. Fast forward to today, she has a successful business that employs a team of 10 and runs courses, events and recruitment for startups. We talk about why monetizing feels so scary, why sales feels a bit gross and how you can avoid that, and why it's okay not to have a plan. I hope you enjoy. So thanks so much for joining the Out of Hours podcast. It's great to have you. Great. I'm so excited to be here. I love talking about where it all began. So this is going to be such a treat. Let's start with the beginning. So you started Copy Club after you joined Propercorn. Can you tell us in just a few words what the Copy Club is? The Copy Club is a community for marketeers who are under pressure to think entrepreneurially. So anyone who feels like they need to hustle to get something off the ground, make it bigger. We exist to make people feel connected and a bit more supported in what can be some quite challenging roles. You started it, uh, you came from a kind of P&G pedigree from a traditional marketing background. Then you moved to Propercorn, which is, I think, where you set it up. What was your experience kind of moving from such a kind of traditional marketing background to something that was a bit more entrepreneurial? It was brutal. Like the first six months, there's, there's, no, there's no way of like beating around the bush. The first six months of Propercorn were awful. I was so lonely and had all of this... Um, ego, I guess there's, there's no other way of like sugarcoating it, ego of like, I've done my grad scheme. I know about marketing that I then bought into a startup world and didn't have any of the language to take what well, I did know. Like I did have skills, but I didn't know how to translate that to people who didn't have the same ways of thinking as me. So I'd actually had a very undiverse experience because P&G hires people who are identical. So I'd only ever worked with people who thought just like me. So when I was working with people who didn't think like me, I had no idea how to explain myself. Um, and I was in endless situations where unsurprisingly, I just hadn't done it before. You know, I might have bought like a one zillion pound media budget, but I hadn't done anything small or I hadn't negotiated with a supplier. There were just so many moments that were just new. So there wasn't like a... There wasn't a vision for the copy club, and I think I'll keep coming back to this. Like, there's never been a plan. <laughs> I've always been led by, firstly, my need, then the needs of others, and now the needs of loads of others. Um, and you know what happened initially was I started having some coffees with other heads of marketing in other startups just to sort of feel a bit less alone, and because at PNG I'd really benefited from the fact that I was part of this big kind of gang of brand managers. I started like building out, I guess, like a little gang of mates through these coffees and everyone loved it. And then I realized that they'd all love each other. And there wasn't an invite to a pub on a Thursday that I was waiting for. So I booked a table in a restaurant and got them all together. Everyone had a really nice time. Everyone said afterwards, you know, oh, my mate, whoever would actually be really interested in this as well. And then suddenly this kind of list was growing on my desktop. It was just a sticky note of email addresses. And once a month, I'd like select all, copy paste, say two restaurants, which one do you want to go to? And we book a table. And, and it really just grew from there. That's as far as I got in terms of like an initial aha moment. 
I think sometimes retrospectively you start to realise it and you start to go, oh, actually, this was the thing. There have been since. There have been loads of moments where, I guess there's no light bulb moment, but there's been moments where it's like got a bit brighter. Where I've like begun to see gaps and chosen to step into them. I want to just go from kind of that first, so you've got this kind of bunch of email addresses and you're thinking, oh, actually these people might benefit from meeting each other. And at the moment, it's kind of more of a social kind of self-improvement development kind of thinking. You do a dinner, that's the first kind of manifestation of it, right? Yeah, it was a dinner once a month, which we probably ran for, we, hang on, me. (laughs) There was no one else, which I ran for maybe nine months. I can't remember one of which was quite big. I remember there being one where there were like 45 people and I kind of felt completely spellbound by like how on earth all of these people had actually turned up. And then we, st- and then I, I keep saying we, cause I'm so like in today, but I have to go back to, to then. It really was just me. Then I started doing some kind of breakfast sessions. So what was lovely about the dinners was that we got pissed and we made friends. And some of them are like, honestly, lifelong friends, you know, people who I hang out with all the time, who it's so funny now thinking like, how do I know these people? And you realize that actually the reason you know them is because years and years ago, they first turned up to an event and they're now just authentically really important people in my life. But I then started adding in like breakfast sessions where we would talk about a specific topic. So it would be how to do influencer marketing. And that was, that was one of those light bulb flicker moments. That was, I was doing development plans with my team and I, you know, I'd say to like a fantastic, really bright 25 year old who's working super hard. You know, and, and I say this, I was like 26 at the time, but I was trying to be a manager. So I was like, gonna try and, and I was really trying to do my best. You know, it was a time where I was so diligent and dedicated and still getting it wrong. So there was just so much kind of type A London day school overachiever in me. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was, I was trying to, trying to make it work. And my team would say, I need to work on presentation skills. And I'd be like, cool. So what are you going to do about it? And they'd look really blank. And so I'd say like, go off and do some research and come back and tell me what you're going to do. And they'd come back and they'd be like, I found a course. It's 1,640 pounds plus fat. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. we have a development budget of like maybe 300 quid ahead. Like that's just not going to happen. So instead I ended up buying them a book on Amazon, hooking them up with a mate of mine, kind of like giving them a hug and sort of being like, it's going to be fine. And that that ultimately just is not a development plan. That's, that makes the whole process completely redundant because if you're not delivering support uh, in a constructive, like detailed way, then how on earth is anyone going to learn anything? So then I started doing these breakfast sessions, which are about particular topics to try and just fill some of that gap. You know, sure, I can't train them, but I can give them stuff to go along to where they're going to come out better informed than when they went in. And then we started bringing in speakers and then all the way through that, this idea of courses kind of brew in my mind. I kept thinking the the courses that are out there are just not right. You know, they're completely inaccessibly priced, like criminally inaccessible for most small businesses, which just means they don't go, people don't go on them. And they teach stuff that, that my team couldn't have used in their day jobs tomorrow. And they're taught by people who are not marketeers. They're taught by professional trainers. And that to me just feels unconstructive so yeah I think that was a moment where things were flickering and that's kind of how it began in its first years to like build from a supper club I guess closer to where we are today it's interesting it's like it's almost like you were just solving your own problems but then being like oh this actually might be useful for other people which is I think a classic place where people start totally 
I loved it. You know, I would like skip to these events. It gave me a sense of a, another channel for my energy outside of a job that I was having quite a tough time in. I was getting much better at my job. I was really good at interview because if I then, and I was looking around for other stuff, trying to work out what I wanted to do, all because there was this feeling in me that really I needed to run my business, but I didn't know how to channel that. And I was too scared. So I was interviewing a lot during that kind of three years of growth. And every time I went to an interview, someone would say, you know, what would you do to or like, tell me about a time where you've like managed a steep learning curve or whatever. And I'd be like, well, I have a community of a thousand people who I just call on if I have, like, if I need help. And you could kind of just watch people go like, that's good. <laughs> like, that's a good answer. <laughs> and I was like, no, nah, I'm onto something. <laughs> Impressed by your network or the fact that you'd set this thing up? I think the fact that I set something up, but also the fact that like, that was an actual answer to what I would do if I was in a situation I didn't have an answer to. And that is, to your point, it was hugely beneficial for me. You know, it meant that whenever I was professionally stuck, and it still means whenever I'm professionally stuck, I have this incredible resource. It's exactly as you describe. I was just following my own instinct and I was really excited and thrilled that it was useful to other people along the way. And then there was another light bulb moment that, that did change when I went. It's, I've never thought about it in this language, but I was, you know, you're completely right. It was all about, it kind of was all about me for a bit. And then I moved abroad and this was like a bit, this was like a big change, big changing moment. I moved to India, my ex-boyfriend, um, is a journalist and we both really wanted to move abroad and it was always the plan. And, and I'd quit my job in London and I didn't know, I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I was like freelancing just to kind of manage myself over the transition. And I sort of thought that was the end of the coffee club. I just felt very like, well, that's been a lovely thing and it'll, it won't work if I'm not in London. Had you quit Propercorn at this point? So I'd quit Propercorn. I'd moved to a tech startup, which was a fantastic, interesting experience, but odd in lots of ways was still building the community and then went to India thinking, well, that'll be the end of the community. I'm not in London anymore. And that was when I, that was the big penny drop moment where I realized that this view that I just basically realized how like entirely hilariously self-obsessed and deluded I was. You know, I sort of thought in my gut that people were coming to these events because they wanted to hang out with me, which is just so stupid. And what really happened was that no one cared if I was in the country or not, because they were getting loads of value from each other and not from me, obviously. And we would just carry, I would just carry on organizing events, ordering prep from the other side of the world to a meeting room somewhere in W1. People would turn up and it all just kept happening. And that's, I think, when I really reflected on like the snowball effect so far and kind of saw truly crystallized that this was something that there was a need for. So just in terms of timings for anyone who's listening and thinking, how long did this all take? So you summed yeah. it up, what year was that? To, ooh, like 2013, 2014. And then I moved away in 2018. So it's four years later. Yeah. And I think that's really, that's really key specifically in the context of community. You know, I, I think community is like quite a toxic buzzword that gets used in a really disingenuous way a lot. Brands rarely have actual community. Community is like a synonym for a big old group of friends and we all know that doesn't happen quickly. Mm. 
so thinking back to kind of when you were setting up these dinners and you were setting up these events, how were you finding people? Because especially physical events, like it's it's difficult to fill a room. You don't know people are going to turn up or not. Did you have any kind of strategies of, of getting people in the room? Yeah, there were two things that I think really helped with that. One is being totally shameless, warm and human. Like there is no there's no hack to it. I just found them all and invited them one by one. And I asked all my friends and I asked, you know, there's this guy, Sam Bennett, who I'm still, you know, I haven't spoken to him for a while, but, but over the years we've chatted so much. And Sam came to, to one of the first ever dinners and he played rugby with my ex-boyfriend's best mate. And so I'd gone to my ex-boyfriend's best mate and said, Hey, do you know anyone who's a head of brand or a head of marketing? And he'd been like, yeah, there's this guy in my rugby team called Sam sent me his LinkedIn profile. I'm not sure what he does, but like, he's great. And that, that connection, you know, me having the courage to drop him a message and be like, Hey, I know this is ridiculous, but started a friendship. Mm. There's no shortcut to it other than just putting yourself out there and being really friendly. And then I think the second thing, the reason I was able to do that is that I really clearly defined a structure that wouldn't make me scared. It was all quite unimpressive intentionally. So it was never, there were never name cards. There was never a guest list until the morning of the event. There was never a showy venue. It was always like in a coffee, sh- like there's this charity coffee shop in Angel that I used all the time just because it was like really shambolic and kind of fitted the atmosphere I wanted to create, which was like a space where people felt completely comfortable admitting they don't have the answers. And I think anything that comes with pretense means that there isn't that atmosphere. You know, if you turn up to somewhere and it's like, you feel like you're not wearing the right thing or you feel like you're, you don't know what a turmeric latte is. Like if there's any kind of froth around it, I think it sets the wrong tone. Um, It also would have made me terrified because it would have been embarrassing for me if there were four of us. When instead, if it's like in the basement of a pizzeria in Soho, it doesn't matter if there are eight of you on the night or 30. So were you literally manually messaging people at the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's important for people to hear that because it's, you know, sometimes you see these crowded rooms and you think, oh, like, it's so easy for people. But actually, I think there's a lot of hard work that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, there's absolutely manual and also I'm laughing because today there are over 3,000 members and we have a team of 10 and what we do is still incredibly manual like that's not going away that's never going away like the reason we have the culture and the atmosphere that we have when it goes right is that it is still humans talking to humans and inviting humans to things that they think are interesting just thinking about that transition from putting yourself at the center so both kind of solving your own problems and also thinking yeah. you're like indispensable to to the experience which I think is quite normal at the beginning because you're the one who, who manually is like doing invites yeah. and stuff so in your brain I guess it makes sense that you have to be there but thinking about that because I think it's such an interesting like transition of mindset of kind of going first I'm solving my own problem I'm doing it because I enjoy it I'm doing it because it's benefiting me in some way or you know I'm connecting with interesting people to okay now actually I can see this maybe being a business and actually no I need to start thinking in a bit more of a structured way and having a target demographic Mm. and stuff like that can you talk me through a bit of that that transition so the context is my personal life I was in India trying not to be like a lost drunk housewife 
you know, that was quite an identity shift for me to move from being the, the like the career woman and, you know, and, and always being really ambitious to having followed my partner somewhere. And I knew that it was a unique opportunity to start a business. Since I was a child, I've been like, I want to start a business. I want to start a business. And suddenly I'd been given an indefinite leave of absence. Like I didn't need to make any money. We'd done all the maths like so carefully that between, you know, from his salary, we could both be absolutely fine. And I was kind of there trying to build a business. It just felt farcical to not build the business that was in front of me. It's interesting because everyone had said to me at the time, like, you're so brave to move to India. And I, the way I'd seen it was like, I'm not because someone had put this incredible opportunity in front of me and it would have been so foolish to say no. And I almost felt like it was the same with the decision to, to like really focus on making it work, which is I had this incredible opportunity in front of me. It would have been so much more brave to try and start business B or to like do become a yoga teacher or like all the other things I was thinking about. Yeah. So that effectively, it, like that's, that's really how it felt. It felt like a no brainer. You know, that moment you had where you're like, ah, should I, do I need to be here for these events? How did your mindset shift from almost solving your own problems to like serving the community? There were a few indications that I could start to make money from what I'd built. So I'd gone freelance, which meant I was doing stuff that people were paying me for, whatever it may be. Like going freelance, I think sounds really strategic and considered. Mine was literally like, I don't have a full-time job, but I still need to make some money for my sense of identity. So I went to my network and I said, I've gone freelance. And when I got emails from people that I'd had for four years being like, hey, I'm looking for someone who can help me with this ad hoc project. Do you know anyone? I started replying and being like, yeah, I'm up for it. And they were like, what? You? And I was like, yeah. I mean, I guess like I've got all the skills and I think I can do it. I've just ne always had a job. So I've never put myself forward for stuff before. So I started to realize how incredibly easy it was to build up a portfolio of work because I had this network. And then you think, oh, well, that's really interesting because loads of businesses try and build communities backwards, right? You know, it's like a classic business development strategy to be like, we're going to start hosting events and we're going to build a community. And suddenly I was like, oh, I've done it back to front. And that's really interesting. So that has become a brand hackers team, which is now like a team of, because, you know, my freelance work just became bigger than me. And then I hired someone that was bigger than them. So now we have a team of people that work on projects that come through the community that are things that don't fit anywhere else in the existing landscapes. There's a bit of a gap between agencies and existing freelancer models. That kind of realization is where that team came from. Mm. And then the other thing that started to happen was I realized that um, when I looked around the industry, a handful of people, like a big handful, had jobs because of connections I'd made over the years. And it suddenly struck me that that's what recruiters do. And there's loads of money in that I'd heard from like what I knew about recruiters. And I just thought, I don't like recruiters. I thought I've been recruited loads of times and it's always been really annoying and has always felt really disingenuous. And I'd felt, I've used the word disingenuous a couple of times, but I do think it's a really important adjective for like what I'm trying to push back against. But I'd always felt like they didn't have my back. They, they were trying to make commission but rather than trying to make me happy. So I started replying to every email about whether I knew someone for a role, which I would get in two, three a week. People would just drop in my inbox saying, hey, I'm looking for someone for this job. Do you know anyone? And I just start replying saying, um, 
yeah, sure. And and if I find you someone, my finder's fee is 500 pounds. And then a week later, my finder's fee is 600 pounds as a game. I was just putting it out there and seeing what happened. No one questioned it. So that is now our matchmaking team. So we, again, we have a, a service that helps find really brilliant brains for marketing jobs that other people might not have heard of. And that really came out of that insight. Um, but I was really struggling with this feeling that trying to make money out of something that I'd built out of love was quite grubby. That's what I was going to ask you about, actually. Yeah. Such a, such a common feeling that people have. Are there any, and I know it's, sometimes it's just gradual, but there were there any things that you did or things that you read or listened to that sort of started to make you feel more comfortable with that? The only thing that changed was I saw how useful it was for other people. I saw that the value equation was so kind of fair that everyone was winning. And that made me feel much more ease. But I, no, there was no like instant moment. It definitely made me feel creepy. Stuff like the, you know, the process I was describing of like trying out finder's fees. I had to make that an email signature because I found it so stressful to write. So I was like automating this game so that it was like emotionally disconnecting me from the process. So it was, it was a real, it was a real fear. And I, you know, I felt, I really felt like I was selling out and I was letting down people who'd entrusted um, a lot in me on the premise that this was a good thing that's good for the industry and, and isn't trying to capitalize on anything. And it, it still haunts me, you know, and I'm still so sensitive to feedback around overselling or even the, even the idea of selling, I find quite challenging. And that's ironic because now we sell two courses a month and we have to promote that we've got three places left and we have to do a lot of like early bird tickets going now. And, you know, that's part of the, 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 the place we're in, but it still doesn't sit quite right in my gut. Why do you think that is? Um, I have a very personal answer to it. So I, uh, a university did a lot of work for a student newspaper that was all set up on the assumption that it was going to be not-for-profit and for the value of the students. And uh, I mean, a lot of work, like really sacked off my degree in, in exchange for kind of dedicating my life to this, to this thing. And in my final year, the founders who'd since graduated had kind of realized they were onto something and came back and declared that it was now for profit. And I felt really let down and very clear that I would never have put in that time if it was to pay for their pints. You know, that, that was not the agreement. So I think I always kind of hark back to that feeling of, um, I, I brought people in on one assumption and I'm now changing the terms of engagement. Mm. Um, however, now we're more transparent and, and fundamentally I've, I've made it very clear in the way I build my own team in the business that, that that's mm. not the case. And that I really focus on transparency and an understanding of the way we're structuring the finances of the company so that everyone knows what they're working for. There's no smoke and mirrors around it. Cause I think that for me is the trigger point, like lack of transparency around money. I just think is dirty. It's like, if you think about that example, like 
actually the money thing is not the thing that you're responding to. It's actually the dishonesty and the fact you've put in loads of work under a different expectation. Like if they'd said to you up front, this is a full profit thing and either you can volunteer some time and we'll pay you and we have money or we'll pay you up front, but for minimum wage or whatever, it'd be slightly different. And it's, it's just interesting. Like I think to analyze, like what are those things that make monetizing feel unpleasant because selling and monetizing are different things as well i think like they they, i think Mm. they they have different like psychological things surrounding them like monetizing is i think a bit more the thing that you're talking about and then selling i think is like how comfortable are you putting yourself out there constantly we could talk a bit about the on the kind of marketing and what's effective in that space but my assumption would be that you you need to be a lot more present than you feel comfortable being yeah how do you feel when you're kind of sending these like you know whether it's like the early bird reminders or you know telling people about something that you feel like you've told them already you know twice before we're so lucky that our customers are so close to us so we have so much customer insight like my whatsapp all day every day is customer insight because I'm just chatting to our gang all the time and I know that they have no idea what we're up to (laughs) Like even our most dedicated members are so busy. They are running amazing teams in complicated brands and there's a lot going on in their lives. And I get reinforcement five times a day of how loud I have to be to cut through. And that's what makes me feel okay about it. You know, because if they were telling me that we were sending too many emails, then I would 100% send less emails. But instead, they're telling me that they're still not sure when our next course is. And I'm like, "Mm -hmm, check your inbox. (laughs) But that's not my, you know, that's not their fault. That's my fault. It's always, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong that's not cutting through? So I think for me, the way I can feel comfortable with selling is to remain so close to the insight so that I'm never blindly guessing whether the message is landing or whether someone, you know, does someone feel like they're being oversold to? Like, does this feel too commercial? I never guess because there's a very strong feedback loop. And that's not to say I know it all, but I really try and stay close to that feedback loop. Um, And then it's this thing around value. You know, when we send out a like doors closing 24 hours, flash sale, whatever, there are then five people who sign up to a course that they absolutely love and that makes them better at their jobs and they have an amazing time for and they think it's great value. And that's what means that I can not worry about it. Yeah. It's almost like it's like a necessary evil. If you believe in that the thing is useful, then you shouldn't be afraid to talk yeah. about it. And I th- I do think it trips people up. Like, I think it's so interesting that point around, like, you'll t- talk to someone and they'll go, oh, oh what, what is it? When, when's the course? And, and you're in your mind, you're thinking, I've told everyone about it like 50 yeah. times. <laughs> yeah, you stupid, I've told you. <laughs> exactly. I don't know, they just think there's a fascinating disparity between like what someone who runs a community or, or a business thinks and actually what people, the impression that people are getting. So how do you close that feedback loop? Do you just, do people just organically message you with information or do you ever like proactively ask people? No, we ask people constantly. Um, and this is where there's a fun intersection because I'm running a community for marketeers. I am a marketeer and I'm also doing marketing work. So I can like market my own business. So um, I, I do this with the brands I work with and with my own business, which is how do we get, how do we get obsessively close to our customers? And that's, um, you know, for the brands I work with, it's like, we're, we have conversations on voice note to people who direct message us on Instagram. We, um, 
are sending out surveys all the time, like monthly in-depth customer surveys to understand what people really think and feel. We're like really analyzing customer service data. Like what are the emails coming in? What are people asking about? Like that is such rich narrative. And we're not afraid to pick up the phone. You know, get five customers on a 20 minute Zoom once a month, just take out half a day once a month to talk to real people. And the perspective it gives you and the ability it gives you to just cut a load of stuff off your list is so helpful. Because you'll just see in their face. You know, I was saying to the team yesterday, we're about to make some changes to our membership proposition. So we're going to find 10 members who are not particularly engaged, invite them to be part of a um, like WhatsApp group panel. This is all happening literally this morning. Um, those 10 members will be part of this like WhatsApp group panel and we're just going to road test everything with them. We're just not going to put anything out that they haven't told us resonates for them. And at every stage, we'll give them a couple of options. You know, don't ask leading questions, basic stuff like that. Don't be like, we think this line is good, isn't it? Like that's not going to give you any insight. But, you know, here are four potential ways we could position this, which you think is the most effective. And we'll just stress test everything about what we do with that with that group. And when you say members, is that people who have signed up, just for anyone who hasn't sort of gone into detail with a copy card and knows like how it works, is that people who have signed up to the monthly membership? Yeah, it's a really good point. So we use the, we use the term members in an intentionally loose way. We are a club, not because we're exclusive. Absolutely not. And one of the, I got rejected from the marketing society, which is like the other industry club before I started the first supper club. And the kind of fuck you to them was one of the triggers for doing my own thing. (laughs) So I never want to reject anyone. The only people we say no to are people who work in agencies who are clearly there just to sell their service into our community. Like it's a safe space. It's not somewhere you should feel that you're being sold to. So those are the only people that we turn away. Otherwise completely open doors. So the club, the word club is because when you're on the inside, you need to feel part of something. It's not about creating doors. So it's kind of inclusive, not exclusive. So our members are anyone who signed up to our newsletter, who opens it occasionally. Like we have a whole load of people who've obviously just signed up and then never come back. And and we don't, we don't really think of them. We do also have a paid membership platform where for five pounds a month at the moment, about to change as we rebake it a bit, you get access to all of our talks for free, all of our historic content, um, discounts on our courses, discounts on lots of other services, and then access to our forums and discussion boards, which are a great place to meet new members and stuff like monthly speed dating where members get to know each other, whole pile of other stuff. So you, it's, it's interesting that you pick up on the language because internally we use them interchangeably. My vision is that those two circles become much more connected, which will happen as we move back to face-to-face events. Um, We've grown in COVID, which is really weird for something that's, um, before COVID, it was me and an assistant. There's now 10 of us. So we can't really remember what we are as a pre-COVID business. (laughs) But when we go back to supper clubs, events, (laughs) conferences, festivals, parties, being a lifeline, you know, being at the heart of what we do, that will again feel clearer. So just thinking as you were talking, this idea of like how much that factors into the sort of discomfort monetizing, because, you know, especially if some of these people have become your friends, I wonder how, how much that kind of feeds into that sense of, oh, oh, I should just be doing this for free. I was thinking when I, when you were talking that I actually think it's about um, tension around the concept of ownership as opposed to money. So I think my narrative has gone from feeling like something I owned when I was in London 
moving abroad, feeling like it wasn't something I owned at all. It had this momentum way beyond me to then monetizing it and feeling a bit like that was trying to kind of almost stroppily reclaim ownership of something that cannot be owned. You know, we are nothing. As a business, we have no assets other than positive will and a good sentiment and a feeling that we're kind of tapping into something exciting. So if the members don't feel ownership and attachment to what we are doing, then there is nothing. So I think that's where the tension around money sits. The ownership thing is so interesting because it's like when you think especially around kind of community stuff, I think what's one of the things when people start something, it's a big question that they have, which is like, how much do I want to control this? And then how much do I want to almost just like let it loose and let kind of the community define what it is? And I think those questions alongside like, how do you monetize and what do you monetize? I think I just think they're really difficult. So I've got quite a simple line on this, which is the community leads everything. We exist to make our members' lives easier. We serve, like community management, we serve the community. They are in charge. We do what they need. Most of our events are their idea. If it's not their idea, it's something we've sense checked with them before we launch it. So I actually find it, I find that very simple. And it comes down to things like, you know, our future plans are pretty woolly because I'll just do what the community most needs next. I sort of know what that might be, but I also know that that's going to change. I think that's like the classic kind of service oriented mindset, which I think makes good community leaders. But I'm curious how you balance proactivity and planning, which I think you do do. You you say that you're um, reactive and I I think you are as well. But I think just from knowing you over the last like few weeks, I'm like, God has got it under control, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I'm organized. (laughs) So I'm curious, like how you balance those two things. So how you're responsive to community needs, but then also, you know, do a one year plan or two year plan, especially if you're employing staff. I don't have a two year plan. I do have a one year plan, but it's pretty fluid. Yesterday, I just invented this like massive new work stream. It's actually quite an interesting example. Uh, we're, we're seeing that there's a real lack of growth marketeers, like a particular skill of marketeers. So people who understand brand and storytelling, but also understand data. And we're struggling to hire them for our own teams. We're struggling to hire them through our matchmaking. And fundamentally, they just don't really exist. Well, there aren't loads of them because it's a new skill set and COVID's like really amped up the demand for it. So yesterday I decided that we're going to start an academy to train this skill. That's not on our one-year plan. I don't have headcount for that. But I know it's needed because it's really obvious to me and the insight we've got about, you know, from what I can see about the market, that that's what's needed. So I try and be less knee-jerk, but I'm not, I'm not that well-planned. Yeah, we're, we're really not. I think we're organized and we manage a lot of spinning plates and we're quite good at calling out what's unconstructive um, and like deprioritizing. So I think we are reactive. We're good. We're, we're as good at cutting down work streams as we are at starting new ones, which I think is key. 
Um, but no, the, the honest truth is that we are very reactive. I think that's also such an interesting point of like when you have a new idea so most people who start businesses are creative people in the broader sense of the word like they come up with they come up with new ideas they're often thinking about better ways to do things do you have any kind of processes that help you deal with that like idea overwhelm I do have a process and it's a process I teach so first of all I am obsessed with objectives like in a broken record way (laughs) like my team will be like literally rolling their eyes like every single conversation I'm like what's the objective every single deck every doc has to have what's the objective what are we actually trying to do here and that I find so helpful that is you know that is your first litmus test to go well a load of this stuff is good ideas and would be super fun to do but is not effective the second thing which I got taught these are both PNG skills like really really taught me about business practice is to road test the business case so I'm not I don't have loads of time for ideas on their own, but I have an endless energy for ideas and an explanation of why they're going to work and what we can expect from them. That means that we can filter. And, and And then I have principles around the way I want to grow the business. So I'm not interested in being financially uncertain. And if that means I grow slower, that is a choice I've made very kind of knowingly, like I, I look, I just look at my life and I look at what I want from my life and what I want from my team's life. And I don't want the stress of financial uncertainty. And so that means every business case needs to be like robustly profitable. And that's meant that all the way through we've grown profit ahead of cost and we are safe. You know, I've really made sure that there's never been a single moment where anything has felt financially sticky. And I continue to kind of prioritize that in the way we review ideas. Um, And then a really clear sense of brand. Like I just instinctively know what is, is and is not a copy club thing to do. And we put a lot of focus in um, like the, the people we hire for the copy club headquarters team, like who we hire, the way we onboard them, the way we work as a team, really, really focus on maintaining that strong sense of our identity. Um, and that is a very useful way for me to go like that is or isn't us. And do you have like any, have you done any exercises or any thinking around like, you know, who you're targeting? I'm just, for people who are listening who don't have a background in marketing, um, I'm just curious, like wh- what kind of your, of your marketing skills you've brought? So much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have a, we have a member called Charlotte. The team will know and talk about Charlotte a lot. I, she's called Charlotte because honestly, like 40% of our members are actually called Charlotte. And <laughs> she uh, is a, brand manager in a fast growth business. She's got a direct report. She's mm. trying to make it into a marketing director role. Anyone on my team could talk to you about who she is. And, and we speak to lots of people like her all the time. Uh, and then we speak to people who are a bit like her, but also different. So we also have our educators. We have our freelancers and our founders, and we understand how they all act a bit differently. I think, yeah, I think I've done a marketing job on, on the business. You know, we know who our target customer is. We know what our brand identity is. We know like if the brand turns up at a party, we all know what kind of person that brand is. We've done all of those textbook marketing exercises and I think they really, yeah, I think, I think the kind of the results of them are quite evident in the way we do things. Which other textbook exercises are there? Uh, (laughs) Who is your audience? What are you trying to say? 
And how are you going to say it? It's like the, 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 you know, who, what, how. So get to know your customer, define your proposition in the right way, and then really think about your messaging. So there are 20 different ways you can talk about what you do, which is the one that's going to resonate the most with your who. So in our case, what does Charlotte want to hear? And then how look at all your different potential touch points. So we use WhatsApp a lot as a business, like a lot in a way that's quite unusual. That for us is like a key how, you know, we've decided that because our what is that we're a brand that's very personal and very human and more like a friend than a professional service, WhatsApp makes total sense for us. Of course, that's where we should be. What have you been most wrong about? Something that surprised you that you thought would go a certain way and then went a different way? We moved the members from WhatsApp groups to a platform where you were more like a kind of standard online forum where you can like share questions and answers. And we thought that people wanted to be able to search. Basically, we were going mad because we were looking at WhatsApp groups and the same question was being asked every week. We were like, guys, just scroll up. The answer's there. We thought everyone was as annoyed as we were and that they wanted to be able to search so that they could see, has anyone spoken about a videographer before? Has anyone spoken about paid sampling before? We were completely wrong. No one wants to search. They want their answer then and there. And that move from WhatsApp has been a really sticky one and has probably set us back quite a quite a significant chunk of growth and then the other thing I was wrong about is webinars I thought webinars were inherently lame and could never not be lame and COVID has taught me that there really is another way yeah how do you do your courses like how how do you find the people how do you vet the material we work with amazing partners so we do lots of it's kind of one of my roles in the business still you know I just try and meet as many great people as possible and if I meet someone great and I feel like they've got the right vibe and the right energy and that they kind of might be up for it. I just pitch them this like mad idea that maybe they want to write a course for us and and then we take it from there. You just do like a revenue share or something? Yeah, we do a revenue share agreement. We do all the marketing logistics, all the insight, all the pulling together of the materials and stuff and they turn up and host it and are fantastic. Everyone we work with is fantastic. So different. We've got a really diverse group of kind of personalities that run our courses um but it's all just been me it it comes back to what you say like there's no way of of hacking this it's just been me having loads of chats our brand strategy our brand manager boot camp which is kind of like the first course we launched and I guess our not our fave but like the one we run the most times and that's run by a, a pair called Chris and Alex who are just a really dynamic duo and then the the courses where there's a single host we will um one of our team will be a co-host for them so there's kind of just a role of like hype girl. <laughs> you've got to, you've got to keep the energy up and you know, someone's carrying like two hours of online content every week with the same group. And so sometimes it's useful to have a sounding board. And how big are they? 12 to 18 people. So the idea is that we really focus on the community aspect. You can go on Coursera and you can buy for like $20 a load of this stuff. Sure. You're not going to do it. Let's be honest. You'll do the first episode and then you won't go back onto it. And you don't meet anyone. And what we offer is community-based training. So we use, in everything we do, we use our community and we like empower and champion the community as much as possible. So you'll have guest speakers who are members of the community from actual brands talking about 
how they've used this stuff, you'll have your cohort. So the other people on the community. And now finally we can like go to the pub at the end of the course. Um, and that gives you this black book. It's, you know, goes back to that first supper club I ever had. How can I create those moments for our members in other ways where they feel like suddenly their world's got 18 people bigger? Any tips for anyone doing cohort courses that you've learned that like work or don't work? Um, breakout groups are really important because you've got to create moments of intimacy. Don't let people join if it's not right for. I think actually that's the one. If you get 16 people who are all fab, who this is really useful for in a room, the magic will happen. If there's two people who it's irrelevant for, then that's annoying. And that's going to bring, that's going to change the mood. So that's on you to manage your participants and to really know your content and really know where it's going to add value. That's not on them to like, cheer up or pull together like if they're in the wrong place their energy is not going to be where you want it to be if someone was thinking about setting up something that has some similarity or just setting up their own side project what advice would you give them never assume anything so what I mean by that specifically like there's so many applications of that I think probably all are true but specifically I mean like never count your chickens until the moment it's all sorted so the reason I've stayed sane is that I didn't hire someone until I really needed to. I didn't assume income until I had the contract like signed and then the cash in the bank. It just never get ahead of yourself. And I think the, the delusion and the false sense of grandeur is really contagious like how quickly you get to a point where you think when I've got 10,000 customers and when I launched into America and when I, whatever, it's like, no, 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 no. Like, babe, it's you and your laptop. So like, let's pull this right back down and focus on where are you going to find your first 10 customers and where are you going to find your next hundred customers? Cool. Have that North star, but keep it really, really hazy. Cause I promise you it's going to move. Don't worry about it just like get your head down and take little steps further and further forward. And I just, I have so many conversations I find like quite frustrating with people who are like, so many guys is like, so I'm going to launch the startup and it's going to get nationwide listing. And then this is going to happen. And then I'm going to sell to Mars. And I'm like, <laughs> like, like, no, not, nothing you've said is true. It might have another brilliant outcome, but it is not the outcome you've described. Thanks so much for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. If you want to check out more about Out of Hours, head to outofhours.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do consider leaving it a review.